I was a traitor to what has become almost like a religion, which maniacally upheld these ideals that COVID restrictions were for the good of the masses. Today I sit down with Jennifer Say, who is on track to become CEO of Levi Strauss & Co. after becoming Chief Marketing Officer and Brand President. Her advocacy against COVID restrictions changed all that. She's the author of Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. It's this costume that the left liberal elite wraps around themselves to say, I care about social justice. I care about all these causes. I am a good person. If you threaten to expose that, you need to be banished. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Jennifer Say, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me on. I'm really happy to be here. Let's just start with your story. Give us the kind of the background of how we got here. Yeah, I'll give you the short version. Um, I worked at Levi's for almost 23 years, a brand and a company that people around the world love. I love the product. I'm wearing it now. Uh, but in 2020, I pushed back on the school closures in my city of San Francisco. Uh, this went against uh, the woke ideology and the democratic leadership, both in my city, state, and at the national level, and this was considered unacceptable. I pushed back and back and back for two years and ultimately was pushed out of the company because of woke capitalism, essentially, because I was foolish enough or perhaps courageous enough to say, this is a lie. This is a lie, this is benefiting no one, and in fact is harming many, many people, many children. Um, but, you know, I was a traitor to this, what has become almost like a religion, um, and certainly um, was a traitor to my class, <laughs> which uh, maniacally upheld these ideals that COVID restrictions were for the good of the masses, when in fact, they were doing such great harm. Well, so there's something about you that was already different. For example, you were, um, well, many things, that's why you're laughing. But um, you, know, you were sending your kids to public school, which was atypical um, of your peer group. <laughs> yeah, it was really atypical. I mean, not just of my side-to-side -side peers. I mean, I think probably two, three levels 
employees below me, below me in the corporate hierarchy, you couldn't find a single soul who sent their kids to public school, not in San Francisco. They perhaps moved to a wealthier neighborhood across the bay where they might um, feel comfortable sending their kids to public school. But by and large, I was um, in the vast minority. And so, you know, over the course of my two years of kicking and screaming about how wrong this was and how children were being harmed, um, my peers all sent their kids back to school because their kids went to private school. That's when I thought the light bulb would go off and people would see the hypocrisy if I just made it clear in a calm, nice way. But they didn't because um, the hypocrisy in a sense is the point. This, this pose of wokeness, it's a cloak they wrap themselves in to signal virtue, to say, to kind of hide greed, corruption, um, keeping all the good stuff for themselves, right? It's this costume that the left liberal elite wraps around themselves to say, I care about social justice. I care about all these causes. I am a good person. If you threaten to expose that, you need to be banished. Um, and my pushing back on this one very simple thing, which now seems so obviously like not that crazy of a thing to have done. Mm -hmm. Let's open schools for public school students. Um, that risked exposing the entire fraudulent operation. I mean, as we've seen of late, Sam Bankman-Fried, the now notorious founder and CEO of FTX, he said it. He said it in a DM exchange with a Vox reporter. He said, it's a game we woke Westerners play so that people like us I couldn't say it any better than that. He said it himself. Now, that, that was fascinating when I came across that because you don't see it verbalized very often. It's interesting, though, because he thought he was talking to someone that was in his cohort. Why would she expose it? Mm. She's in the press. They're buddies. They're both up to the same game. He didn't think she would release that. Add to that, he doesn't really think there's anything wrong with it. They don't think there's anything wrong with it. Because if you only ever talk to people who agree with you and think the same thing, it's very hard to think that there's anything wrong with that. That becomes your morality. That becomes your religion. That becomes the way you think. You don't let anything pierce that. So he shared it with her as a co, you know, a fellow member of this woke tribe. Why would she expose it? She'd risk exposing herself. But she saw the hypocrisy and exposed it. Oh, that's a fascinating take. There's so many areas to cover here, right? Um, I want to start with where, when you just first noticed something was off. March 13th, 2020, uh, the, the day that everything locked down in San Francisco. It was off from day one. I could say it was even before that because you know we felt it coming in San Francisco. We knew this was coming. The fear and the panic was already being generated, but I was obsessively reading the data along with my husband that was coming out of Italy, which you know the median age of death was over 80. Um, nobody was bothering to look at actual data or adhere to the pre-pandemic playbook, which said you never shut schools down for more than a couple of weeks. And so my kind of alarm bells went off 
from the very beginning. So it was from day one that me and my husband, we both said, hell no, this is wrong. People are going to be harmed. I had kept my advocacy to children in schools. Um, it wasn't because I wasn't opposed to other things like lockdowns and business closures and keeping old folks in, you know, retirement homes from their loved ones and sick people in hospitals from the comfort. I was opposed to all of this. Um, and then the upcoming vaccine mandates for a vaccine that we now know does not even work. People were fired. I was opposed to all of this, but I did try to manage my outspokenness to children and schools and restrictions on kids. I thought that would be something we could all reach some agreement on, that we should not harm children, but I was wrong. It was all of a piece. But it took you know, quite a while for your you know, exit from, from Levi's. Yeah, it did. It took actually quite a while because I was outspoken from the very beginning. Like I said, March 13th. Um, it wasn't until September of that year. So, you know, a full six months until somebody raised it with me at work. And, you know, it was our head of corporate communications. And she said, you might want to maybe think about maybe not doing this. <laughs> um, when you speak, you speak on behalf of the company. The you know implication being there would be reputational harm to the company caused. I would argue their bigger concern was reputational harm to them, my peers themselves, who had adopted this pose, this virtuous pose to say, I stay home all the time because I care about people. Meanwhile, in October, September of October or October of that year, they all began to send their kids back to private schools. And I really believed at that point the fever would break and people would see the hypocrisy and there would be a rising up of people to say, we need to open the schools, we need to open businesses. At this point, playgrounds in San Francisco were closed. I thought people are going to definitely argue about, you know, they're going to say we need to open the playgrounds. But there wasn't. It was so oppressive in San Francisco. It's sort of like the further left leaning a city, state, or town was, the more oppressive and the more intense the restrictions were. And by December, when I started to lead rallies with my husband and a few friends, they were sparsely populated. Um, people were afraid to push back against this religion. Um, they were afraid because you experienced tremendous reputational harm if you did. You were called everything from a teacher killer to a racist, um, a eugenicist. Nobody wants to hire a person or give a person like that a job. Who would? So, you know, from the first time that I got talked to in September, it was just constant for the next year and a half. And I was so angry. I, you know, because a, a sane person might say to me, well, why didn't you just stop? I couldn't because the hypocrisy, it was so great and I was so angry that these people would dare to say to me while sending their own kids to in-person school, you can't advocate for poor children to be in school. And I don't understand what is wrong with anyone that would not advocate for the same. I don't understand it. It just is, it lacks empathy. 
It lacks any imagination that these children might be suffering. It's cowardly. And so despite the fact that I am not someone that likes to be hated, I don't like fighting with people, I like to be liked, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop because the hypocrisy was just so enraging to me. Before we continue, I just want to mention, and you highlight this in the book too, you know, you were a very long-standing CMO. You know, you were, mm -hmm. you've kept that job a lot longer than others because you were quite successful at your yeah. job. And that would suggest to me that you got along with a lot of people because that sort of is a very important part of the job, right? Yeah, it's a prerequisite. I mean, especially for women in corporate America, I think some men can get away with sharper elbows, but um, I was good at my job. I was well-liked in the company. It sounds sort of a little obnoxious to say that, but I was. I was well-liked. I'd been there for a long time. I had friends across many years and generations and um, iterations of the, the company. Uh, my own boss, the CEO, uh, called me, he called it a culture carrier. Culture carrier. So it, it, what he meant by that was I sort of embodied the ethos of the company and the brand. Um, I was a CMO for eight years, very unusual. The average tenure is about two years. Um, it's a slippery seat. People don't deliver on the expectations. There's a lot of, I would say, kind of fancy talkers and non-doers in the role. Um, but you got to get the work done and you got to drive the business. And so that, in a sense, is what's alarming about this. You know, there are those that would say, well, you're this corporate executive. You're not just any employee. You're not just any person. You have an obligation. What, to keep my mouth shut? If I can't speak up, somebody well-liked, beloved, with 22 years under my belt at the company, in line to be CEO, who can? That should scare us all. It's actually really dangerous when you create a culture, both in a company and then more broadly, that is not open to debate and dissent. And we see this again, I'm gonna use Sam Bankman-Fried, Nobody who saw the weakness in this company, the fraudulence, the corruption, felt that they could say anything because he was beloved. That was the story. He's a good guy. He supports the right causes. Best not say anything. Well, and we've heard this, you know, it wasn't just people in the company, people outside the company. Journalists didn't question or provide any scrutiny. Look how many people now have been harmed. How many people have lost their life savings? Not just really rich people, regular people who put their life savings in this exchange. That's what happens when we don't question and challenge and we see that something is wrong. You know, what struck me about this situation was SBF basically spent pretty lavishly across all sorts of very left-wing causes, okay? And I, when it, just when I saw this, I was thinking to myself, this almost feels like kind of protection money. Like he's paying off all these media. He's the number two contributor to the, to the Democratic Party. He's basically like everywhere where um, scrutiny might come, right, from the establishment, it, they've all kind of been covered. It almost seemed very deliberate, and that's when I when we when I saw that 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 exchange with the Vox reporter, I thought to myself, "Wow, he really was looking at this cynically the whole time." That's amazing. 
Yeah, he admits it. He writes it down right out loud because he doesn't really think there's anything wrong with it. It just fell apart. Um, and I think it functions on two levels because I think you're right. He's sort of paying off without calling it that. It's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> paying off those who might seek to expose him or apply any scrutiny. But then broadly for the rest of us, whether it's the everyday investor or the everyday employee or just the general public, it provides a cover. Oh, look, he's doing all these nice things. He is a nice guy. I won't question it. So it sort of works on two levels, I think. Um, he buys himself cover from any degree of scrutiny whatsoever, and we can see how dangerous and problematic this is. Now, even for those, I would say that perhaps didn't so overtly pay for that cover. You know, I'm reminded of Elizabeth Holmes, um, a favorite subject of mine for many years because she seemed so unconvincing to me the whole time. She seemed um, just a little crazy, honestly, in terms of her self-presentation. Um, but it was a similar sort of adoption of a pose without perhaps all the payoffs. Although when you look at who was on her board, um, she still bolstered support in that way. Um, but ultimately, she went when they go beyond selling the product, her product was this thing that never worked that was supposed to, you know, draw blood with a finger prick. Um, it never worked. That was beside the point. All she talked about was changing the world, changing healthcare, changing the way, you know, you get, receive, and understand, you know, healthcare and you understand your own health. This always sets off alarm bells for me. Sell the product. Mm -hmm. If you're doing any more than that, there's a game being played. Hmm. You have a ton of fascinating observations about woke capitalism um, from someone who frankly played the game. And you also you know, talk about that too. And I definitely want to get into that. Um, what I want to talk about now is just this sort of time period where you know, towards the end of that six months that we discussed earlier when, you know, you were outspoken, people started to notice, people started coming and saying, hey, I, I, I don't know if you want to be talking about what you're talking about. And then, you know, your plan was actually ultimately to exit with fanfare, with a splash, right? So t just tell me about that and why. Yeah, it went on for two years. My advocacy, them pushing back, saying you can't do this. By December of 21 slash January of 22, that is when I was told there's no longer a place for you. You can't be the CEO because of the things you've been saying and doing. Therefore, you can't sit in your current chair because that is the role that ultimately becomes the CEO. So you need to leave. Um, I was offered severance. I decided that I would not take that because that inevitably comes with the signing of a non-disclosure agreement. What the non-disclosure agreement would require is that I never speak about the terms of my ousting. And I was not okay with that uh, because I was increasingly alarmed over the course of the two, two and a half years, however long it was, at the illiberalism that had taken hold of this institution and other institutions like it, corporate 
entities across the country. It had traveled from college, college campuses and oozed into companies. And I found it and still find it to be incredibly dangerous because if you insist on a culture where free speech is not tolerated, not only is it uninclusive, which is problematic in and of itself, but I actually think it's fraught and rife with the potential for corruption and fraud like we've seen with Theranos um, and FTX and Enron. And I mean, should I go on? We work, there were people in those companies who knew what was going on, but they didn't feel they could say anything. And there are plenty of examples, which I cite in my book, less overtly criminal, but problematic. Because if you cannot have a conversation in the company about what is working and what is not working, what is true and what is not, you can't innovate, you can't move forward. It stands in the way of progress when we can't have these conversations because we're all just adhering to propaganda. So why did you decide that you're gonna go out with a bang with this op-ed and common sense? Uh... Because, sorry, yeah, I didn't finish answering the question because I felt that it was it was too important, it was absolutely imperative to expose this culture that was epitomized by my last two years at Levi's. This sort of woke capitalism as a pose, a fraudulent, corrosive pose that corporate executives adopt to hide what is really going on underneath the covers, which is anything but progressive or values-driven, inclusive, um, and essentially is a cover for the fact that at its best, business is as it's always been. It's about profit for shareholders and executives. At its worst, there's real corruption underneath of it and criminality, and one can easily, I think, lead to the other. Hmm. So it was too important to me to expose that because I think it's, un-American. I think it's dangerous. I think it is a violation of the spirit of the First Amendment. It is, it stands in the way of truth-seeking, ultimately. So I went out with a bang. And I mean, you put your money where your mouth was too, because you would have gotten probably at least a million dollars or something like that if you had, if you had played along. So. I would have gotten a million dollars if I had signed the non-disclosure and never spoken of any of this again. But didn't they know at this point that this wasn't your style? You would think. Um, but I think, you know, I'll go back to the example of Sam Bankman-Fried and saying what he said to this reporter. It's beyond their imagination that anybody would give up. This is the culture. They can't fathom a world in which one of their own would give up a million dollars to speak the truth. It's like, it's beyond their wildest imagination. Because hmm. they wouldn't give up anything. Give up nothing. They would give up nothing. Money is always first. That's fascinating. I mean, it paints a more disturbing picture than I was aware of, let's just say, when you, when you put it that way. You have a lot of great observations, I mean, from being in the thick of this over a couple of years. So for starters, you know, um, this 
woke ideology, a lot of people have only become really aware of it in the last few years. Yeah. Like people, when it comes to school, I've, I've countless people I've spoken with told me, you know, the silver lining of this virtual learning was that I actually heard what the class, what the teachers were teaching my kids and was, I <laughs> cut it off yeah. very quickly, you know, that kind of thing. But um, tell me what you've learned. You've thought very deeply about this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to kind of look historically at what woke meant in the beginning, um, you know, in the 40s and the 50s and even into the 60s. It was really just a very simple thing that was being awake or alert to the fact that there was racial inequality and being part of the movement to change that. Admirable. I have no issue with that. The issue I have is what's happened in the last 10, 15 years, but I think has accelerated in the last five, three to five, which is the corruption and the commoditization of, that, of those beliefs into an ideology which can never be questioned. Nothing. Gender ideology, race ideology, body positivity, um, you can be very supportive, for instance, we'll use a specific example of trans people. I had trans people on my team at work. I'm very supportive. I would never want a person to be discriminated against for, for anything, including being unvaccinated, but that's a separate point. Mm -hmm. But if you question whether or not an 11-year-old should be on puberty blockers, which we have no research on about the long-term, mid to long-term impacts, then you are violating this ideology, therefore you are evil and you must be banished. It's become religious in nature. The woke capitalism is really just an attempt to profit off of this ideology and the passion behind this ideology amongst primarily Gen Z and millennial consumers. So it's really um, corrupted at this point because they're really just co-opting it to make money. Something just kind of struck me here, right? You've become, become even more outspoken, you know, subsequent to leaving Levi's and obviously writing, writing a book and so forth. Um, Along the way, what has happened to your friends or your peer group, or you know, how has that how has that changed or or not? Oh no, it's changed. It's changed significantly. Um, I would say there's sort of several kind of groups. There were my friends of you know my friends and colleagues at Levi's. Very few, um, well, none stood by me during the course of the two years at Levi's. I've heard from a few since to say probably not supposed to talk to you, but I hope you're well. So that's nice, makes me feel good. These are people I knew and worked side by side with for 20 years. Um, my friends from outside of work, it's more of a, well, we're really confused by the things you say and do, but you know, I guess we won't banish you completely, but we find you kind of upsetting and confusing. Um, and then there's family members that have, you know, I have no contact with because what I said was, you know, so problematic as to be deemed evil 
and dangerous, which is what I don't understand about any, I will never truly understand in my heart of hearts about any of this. Why couldn't we all just disagree on perhaps what the best path forward was? Why did I have to be positioned as literally the incarnation of all things evil by people even in my own family? I will never fully grasp why that happened. I know, I mean, you're, you talk about your brother. That must have been very difficult. Yeah, that's been the most painful part of all of it. And I really wrestled with whether or not to put anything in it, um, anything in the book about it at all, because it really does expose a wound. Um, but I do find, you know, you asked about friends. I also have made so many new friends um, who, lots of moms from across the country who pushed back on the restrictions and this unfairness directed at children. And we come from all walks of life. We come from all sides of the political aisle, some religious, some not. I've never really had a, a, a group of friends so diverse in their upbringings, you know. Um, and they've been tremendous support to me, but what I've found is some of them have also had these sort of family fractures. And it's the thing we most bond over because it is the most painful thing. And I find for myself when reading memoir, which is like my favorite thing to read, it's those moments of vulnerability and of pain when the writer is really truly honest that I find the most connection and inspiration. So I felt for that reason, it was important to include some of it. Um, I've only included really what's publicly available, meaning social media exchanges. I've not included any private communication. Has your view of humanity changed at all through this? It has. I'm trying to be optimistic, but I feel sad, mostly. Um, people seem more interested in fitting in and being in with the group than doing the right thing. And I did not I did not believe that about my friends. I didn't believe it before. Um, I thought they were critical thinkers. I thought they believed in questioning authority, challenging the narrative. Uh, but when it came down to it, it seems sure to me like 90% of people went with the story they were being told and were willing to ostracize and demonize their own friends and family members. And there's something really upsetting about that. In a sense, I should have known. You know, I study history. There are plentiful, you know, there's so many examples. I cite the Milgram experiment in my book. Two thirds of people continued to um, register shocks on these, you know, fake research um, study participants. They didn't realize they were the ones being studied, the ones administering the shocks. And if you know anything about that study, you realize that it's been replicated many times and those are always the results. Somewhere between 60 and 75% of people just obey authority. That's consistent across geographies, across cultures, across decades. And I think that's what we saw here. So it's disheartening and it's very different to learn it from a book versus to kind of go through it in your own life. That really drives the point home when you go through it in your own life. So 
What do you think about this authority? How do you think this authority could have been so wrong on so many and so many things consistently? I mean, this is the thing. It actually, I find that quite stunning. You mean the COVID industrial complex? Yeah, whether whether it's on lock, lockdowns, having you know, implementing policy that was known to not be a good idea in the literature previously, throwing out the book, doing a type of vaccination untried, uh, you know, untested, un uh, impossible to test in a short period of time. You know, and then specifically around children, that's, that's also been my question, because it seemed like in all cases, the children were so our society's most vulnerable, but were least vulnerable to the virus, and we knew that in March of 2020. Yeah, and they were the, somehow, some way, became the locus of all of our anxiety. All of the greatest restrictions were put on children. Even now, close to three years later, the debates are about masking in schools. Do we bring them back? Nobody's debating, do we mask in bars, and do we mask in clubs, and do we mask at sports arenas? It's always children. That's the locus of our anxiety, and I don't understand it. Um, I. I don't know how to explain it. Honestly, I don't. It was like a mass psychosis or a you know, global social contagion. Um, there are those that think, and I think I adhere to this somewhat, that in the US, and you know, we have to think of the United States as a global leader. Others followed our lead in a sense. Anything Trump said was bad, so we had to do the opposite. So I really did believe in my heart of hearts that okay, the Democratic Party will use this to defeat Trump. They'll position themselves as the good people fighting disease and keeping people safe. But once they win the presidency, they'll stop. But it didn't stop. And I think you can't stop it once it's a social contagion. I don't know if they meant to or they tried to, but it never stopped. Um, but it was in the ether. It was amongst the people at this point, And I think it was unstoppable. I read something in the book which struck me in a different. You, you were talking about how um, you were actually talking about how to sell jeans. I'll, I'll read what I wrote. He said, "The trick in fashion to get people to all want to look the same and buy the same stuff with only slight variations, while telling them they are being themselves. It's a remarkable sleight of hand if you think about it." I mean. Uh, when I read that, I said, "Is she talking about selling jeans, or she's talking about wokeism?" Ah, you know, I was actually talking about selling jeans, but I think you're right. Um, it's analogous, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, in fashion, at least in sort of mass marketed fashion, and certainly at Levi's, where our whole sort of reason for being, our vision for the brand was to enable your authentic self-expression. You don't have to look like everybody else, look like you. But we sold that idea to everyone, and they're all wearing the same jean in the end, right? Um, but marketing individuality is, that is what all fashion brands do at this point. They market individuality. They commoditize your authenticity. See, what, what, what strikes me about wokeism, this, is, this passage really made me think about this, is that you know, the people that really believe in it, that aren't, which, which I know there are many people that really truly believe in it and aren't these looking at it cynically like you know, SBF was, um, 
they believe they're changing the world through their, you know, individual, thoughtful, strong moral positions. But when the reality feels more to me like, you know, everybody is actually has the exact same position and the moment a different position is taken, the mob descends and destroys that person, there's, you know. There's nothing just or kind about it. I, I always laughed before this even, um, all this happened to me, um, that the people on my side, which was the woke side, would always talk about themselves and label themselves as good trouble. They would use that John Lewis phrase, good trouble. And I would laugh and say to myself, you're no trouble at all. Everyone you know agrees with you. Who are these people you're waging war against that you're fighting against? You've never met one. You don't know anyone in Silver Lake or Brooklyn that thinks any differently than you. You're, no, you're not good trouble. And that's what's so astonishing about all of this is, and I think you're right, although I didn't think about it when I wrote that, wokeism allows them to kind of adopt this, I'm a fighter for all things good and right. I don't know what they're fighting. Everyone they've ever met agrees with them. They're not fighters. They will never stand apart. They will never stand up um, for anyone that goes against this ideology, even slightly. And I would agree with you that most of these folks think they are fighting for the right thing. And that somehow that justifies horrific treatment of other human beings. How do these people, this is why I couldn't understand they justified locking poor children at home with no schooling for 18 months without an adult to supervise as right, righteous and just. They're true believers. But they stopped analyzing and thinking about what was happening because there is no universe where that was right and just. There is no universe where old people being forced to die scared and alone is just. But they believed in this bigger cause and in themselves as righteous. And they could not allow that stuff, the facts, to creep in. It justified discrimination against the unvaccinated. My company fired people that wouldn't get vaccinated with a vaccine that does not prevent infection or transmission, and they've still not rescinded the requirement. One of the things I found very interesting about reading your book is that, you know, intuitively, it was very obvious to me that, that whatever the logic that was driving this COVID policy somehow was very much like woke logic. But what I found very interesting is that, you know, you make that connection you know, explicitly throughout. I, it is connected, although I think the, the start point was different. Mm -hmm. You know, I think most woke causes, I'll use one that's a little less fraught, body positivity, still pretty fraught, <laughs> to be clear. Um, body positivity, which touts healthy at any size, false, that's not true, it doesn't matter, you can't question that ideology. Um, it started... Well, it's debatable where it started. One could argue it started, you know, as a movement by women. And it was adopted by 
medicine, pharma, um, companies, corporations, and ultimately the government. I mean, we couldn't say during COVID that it was dangerous to be overweight. I mean, I said it and that made me a fat phobe, right? So my point here is that usually it starts over here in the woke kind of world and gets adopted by the party. With COVID, it kind of went the opposite direction. I think it started being touted by the party, the Democratic Party. This is what good people did. Good governors locked down. Um, good mayors locked down and closed schools. Public health gave them the cover for that public health bureaucrats by saying, if you don't want to do this, you don't care about people and everyone will die. So it started in the party, but was adopted as a woke cause. So I think it went the opposite direction with COVID mm. versus what we've typically seen. Um, but the way it functioned and operated, I agree with you, became similar. The truth didn't matter. It was ideological. It didn't matter what harms were being caused. Children were being harmed. People were being fired. Old folks were dying alone. Didn't matter. None of that mattered. What mattered was belief in this ideology. Just like, I'll use body positivity, it doesn't matter that people are actually being harmed by being morbidly obese. And they are being harmed. Their lives are being shortened. They are less healthy. Their lives, they are less mobile. Um, they are sicker. We can't say that because the mantra is, healthy at any size. It's ideological and you, you have to be pure in the belief of that ideology or you are evil and must be shunned. So you've said uh, that your biggest mistake was not understanding, I mean, this is my shorthand, not understanding the woke side-taking logic. Explain that to me. Well, I thought, I mean, perhaps what makes me foolish <laughs> is I thought I could be convincing. <laughs> you know, I thought I can make it make sense. I can state it all very clearly. I'm gonna be nice about it. I'm not gonna yell at people. I'm gonna do it in my nice lady voice, my nice lady executive voice. Um, I can make it make sense. But there wasn't any making it make sense. People had bought in with religious fervor to this belief system and anything that strayed or veered from that was heresy. And I misunderstood the intensity of the fervor. Hmm. That was my mistake. I thought I could sort of pierce that with logic. You know, early on, and you document this, uh, you know, you implemented some very, frankly, woke policy <laughs> yourself. Um, at the company, you know, before COVID, I guess. Um, so tell me about that and tell me, you know, what you think about it now. Yeah. Well, first off, I have thought a lot about the line, sort of what is the line in terms of what companies should, can do. And I think I lay out the line pretty clearly in, in the book. You can agree or disagree. Um, I actually think companies adopting policies that further fairness and better working conditions for employees, I support that. I'll use an example from Levi's past. Levi's was the first Fortune 500 company to offer same-sex partner, partner health benefits. I support that. 
Most people would support that now. It was very controversial at the time, but we extended greater equality to all employees. We actually, in fact, extended that same benefit to unmarried heterosexual couples in the company as well. I think when you keep it in the four walls of the company and you improve and en enhance the working conditions for employees, that's a good thing. I think when you start signaling that outside the company as a marketing strategy for the company to drive revenues, mm. that is problematic in many ways. One, it makes many employees feel unwelcome. Two, it alienates some potential customers. Three, it's dishonest. Mm. It's a lie. It's a marketing strategy. So um, that's my line in terms of what I think is, is okay. Like you could argue, I mean, I don't know if you would argue that giving um, same, se you know, same sex couples, partners, you know, giving them the health benefits. Is that a woke policy back in 1992? I don't think so. I, I think it was about fairness and equality, just like integrating factories was in the 50s, which mm -hmm. Levi's did before the law required it. I think the policies that you're referring to that I was a part of are about the employee resource groups. And I think I'm still thinking through some of this, so you'll bear with me. Um, employee resource groups are all the rage in corporate America. And essentially, it's these cohorts of various subsets of employees, sometimes race-based. And I was the executive sponsor of the Black Employee Resource Group at the request of certain some employees, friends in my group. Some were not race-based. There was a veterans. ERG, there was a parents ERG, uh, there was a disabilities employee resource group. So they're not always race-based. And I think the intentions are well-meaning in that it's an attempt to create a sense of community within the community. And the story I tell is, you know, I was a young woman coming up in this company. There weren't a lot of female executives. It was very easy to feel not part of the broader culture and for the women in the company that were coming up, we sort of had our own little shadow group, mm -hmm. you know? We created that sense of community ourselves. It was not at odds with the goals of the company. It was completely in sync. But we would get together and talk about our experience, and many of us had young children, and we were up half the night. It was really just a way to create connection and community, and actually, enhanced my connection to the place. It didn't make me feel separate, it made me feel more a part of it. But I think the problem is how these things get executed. And when certain groups in these company-supported ERGs are perceived to have more benefits than other employees, then that creates discord within the company, and I think it's problematic. When some groups have goals that are different or outside of the company's larger mission, that's also a problem. So ultimately, I think it comes down to how they're executed, but I've seen such poor execution over the last few years that I'm beginning to wonder if it, if it can work. Well, so what, what I'm thinking about, for example, is, right, there's this in, in woke ideology, you know, for example, the idea is that if you're in one group, if you're 
you know, for, if it's race-based, if you're black, you, if you're white, you can't ever understand right. what it would be like. You can't empathize, really, yeah. at all, right? Because you have no idea and right. don't even try. And if you suggest you, you could, that's terrible. Well, that's right? evidence of how racist right. you really are. <laughs> right, right. Well, and what I'm saying is that I guess you've thought a bit about how, and this is, I've thought about this kind of stuff as well, is how, you know, essentially something which might be like, you know, having a veterans group because these pe people have a common uh, history and so forth gets kind of weaponized into this ideology and then actually when it's implemented becomes used to in further that ideology and create, you know, divisions where they might not exist. Yes, that can happen. I guess in my heart of hearts, I don't believe it has to happen. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, you know, the ERGs at Levi's, look, I was the white sponsor of the black ERG. They did not exclude, anyone could join. Mm. There were white folks in the black ERG that considered themselves friends and allies. There were Latino folks. Um, so they weren't in exclusive in that sense, which I think is different than some companies. I think in some companies, there is no joining if you aren't a member of the group. Um, and I think for the first two years of which I was a part of it, it really did create this greater sense of community and belonging to the larger organization. It really did. I mean, I, I stand by that. But I do think things got a little crazy in the summer of 2020. And things just kind of accelerated, you know, and there was an expectation of a different kind of treatment. And in fact, it's funny, I haven't told this story, but I'll tell it here. I think there were 11 or 12 ERGs at Levi's. There was a lot of anger and jealousy because the black ERG got more attention and they got more of a floor with the executives. They got more visibility and that just accelerated. Now, now part of the reason was because I was leading it and I was really bullish and I felt I had some really talented employees that had perhaps not gotten the visibility that they deserved. But after um, the ascendancy of BLM and the murder of George Floyd, the black ERG really got all the fanfare in the organization. So there was a lot of infighting and bickering because the others didn't feel they were getting um, the visibility and attention they deserved. So, you know, something else that struck me as I was reading um, was you observing how corporate CEOs or people high up in the corporate ladder are actually quite influenced by their kids who very often have been going to schools where they've been indoctrinated with this woke ideology extensively. And that kind of helps precipitate that. And when I thought about it more, it's like, I can imagine that could actually play a very significant role in, in changing the direction of companies. And that's something that never occurred to me before. Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of this whole sort of movement and trend towards I'm your friend, not your parent. You know, parents want to be in good with their kids. They don't want to tell them what to do. Um, and it's, it's also part of this sort of, I feel a little guilty that I have so much money. I acknowledge my privilege and the kids feel even more guilty. These kids have had every advantage under the sun since forever. Um, they have unimaginable wealth. They have trust funds. They feel very guilty about it. And they want to overcome that guilt. And they do it 
through the presentation of themselves as social justice warriors. They have learned this in their very woke elementary schools. They went on to woke colleges. Every space is a safe space. Every sideways glance is a grave social injustice that they must battle with every ounce of their being. And they come home and they tell their parents about this and their parents lean in because they're the friend, not the parent. I mean, I told my parents that they were wrong about everything too, but they didn't believe me mm-hmm. because they knew better. <laughs> now, um, there's just all this guilt. And so the parent adopts the same pose that the child adopts so that the child will be proud of them, I believe. Well, no, and it, it makes perfect sense because that's that's how this works. If you don't, if you're not sort of, I guess, anointed with the, the moral veneer, so to speak, then you're going to get shunned. So the parents are going to lose their kids, the kids are going to lose their friends. And in fact, like, you know, the work often is actually ostracizing the people. Yeah, that's a lot of hard work, right? It's crazy. Um, Yeah, if you're not presenting this um, stance as a social justice warrior, even as a very wealthy CEO, then you're just a greedy capitalist. Then you're, you know, greed is good. They want to distance themselves from all of that of the past. the banking tycoons and the uh, Wall Street traders of the past, oh no, that's not who they are. They just happened to be rich. They didn't, you know, elbow people and cheat. (laughs) They didn't do any of that. They just happened to be really good at what they do and they're super nice and they care about making the world a better place. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like what Sam Bankman-Fried said with his effective altruism stance. But it is really not that different than the CEOs at more established companies. It's the same mechanics um, are at play. And I do think you know the relationships, and I say this as a Gen Xer with two Gen Zs, the relationships that I observe um, across my cohort, they're different than they were um, in years and decades gone by. The parents really do want to be friends with their kids and they take guidance from their children. They take fashion advice from their children um, as well as moral um, and ethical advice. And I think they want to appear like good people in the eyes of their, their kids because in essence, their kids have been told through the woke ideology they learn in school that they are bad because not only are they white, but they're rich. They're really bad. And so this is their attempt to sort of push back on that. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately, especially as, I, as I've been doing interviews about related to gender ideology, is this you know, very concerted effort to, to re- remove the parents' um, authority, the, the children's sense that the parents are the ones who have their authority and shift that over to the school. And what just struck me about what you were ta- saying is that this sort of inversion almost of how parents and children relate to each other actually also puts the power in the hands of the school because they're teaching it and now the kids are teaching the parents what the correct moral position is what yeah it's insane it is as if the parents have been sidelined a bit whether it's by the schools or by the children (laughs) themselves Um, but i think we're gonna have a rude awakening Honestly, because when the parents give up 
that responsibility of parenting, the accountability, I don't think it goes well. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a very different example. You read the book, you know. I was an elite athlete as a child. And in this world, parents did give up their parenting responsibility. They sent their kids off to training camps. Um, they sent their kids to live at gyms run by the Carolis or my coaches, the Strausses, where children were not well cared for. They were abused, they were forced to train on injuries, but parents sort of, you know, gave the ownership of raising their children to these coaches who did not have their children's best interest in heart, at heart. The parents allowed themselves to be convinced that this was best for their child. That didn't go well, you know. That's how we got Larry Nasser, who's the most prolific pedophile, I think, in the certainly in the history of American sport. He's mm -hmm. sexually abused over 500 athletes. He often did it with parents in the room. But the parents trusted him, and they gave over the sort of ownership and accountability to these other people who were running USA Gymnastics, you know, to this doctor, to the coaches in the gym that their child attended. I, I say it in this context because it takes away some of the current um, kind of energy and <laughs> conflict. And everyone can see that wasn't a good thing. And in fact, when these stories broke, you know what people said, feedback? Where were the parents? Where were the parents? Why weren't they parenting? That's what people said when they read my first book. Where were the parents? And yet now, the parents are wrong and they're supposed to back up and they're mm -hmm. supposed to not be sort of participating in their child's um, education and their, their rearing. They're supposed to, if a child comes home at 11 and says, I'm the opposite gender, they're supposed to affirm that. They're not supposed to parent. Um, you know, we started talking a little bit about woke capitalism. You describe it as a scam. What is the scam? Woke capitalism is corporate America's attempt, successful attempt, to commoditize, I think, the mostly well-meaning activism of Gen Zs and millennials just an attempt to make money off their activism. So one of the things, uh, you know, when Vivek Ramaswamy talks about woke capitalism, um, he basically describes the shift from, and this is essentially what ESG allows, right? The shift from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. Now the CEO can exercise their power and say, well, it's not about fiduciary responsibility anymore. It's about the stakeholders, whoever that may be. And you know, as Vivek has said, well, typically the stakeholder is the Chinese Communist Party. Different story, different interview. But the bottom line is that, do you see that as part of the scam? I think part of the scam, I said the first part, right? I think the second part is it's, you know, this co-opting of this youthful generation's activism to appear good and well-meaning so that they can still make tons of money for the executives and the shareholders. It still benefits the same people it always benefited. Mm. It's pretend. And ESG is just this good housekeeping seal of approval. 
Look at the list of high-ranking ESG companies. It's a joke. FTX was a high-ranking ESG company. Mm -hmm. It's a joke. It's a marketing strategy. It's a seal of approval that says these people are good and they're doing good in the world and they take all, they, you know, they have this scam of a P&L and they take all the money for themselves. It's just the same as it's always been. In fact, more so. The ratio of CEO compensation to average employee compensation has gone up and up and up and up every year for the last 25 years. The average CEO makes over 350 times more than the average employee. And, you know, to go back to COVID here, you know, we've witnessed, I think, unequivocally the largest wealth transfer in history over a very short period of time from poor people to extremely rich people. To your point. But they all said they were doing good and cared about people and cared about saving lives, and that was enough. In the meantime, companies like my own were laying off employees in record numbers. 25 million people lost their jobs due to lockdowns. They said they were doing it with empathy. They said they cared about employee health and welfare and well-being, and so we can't open our stores, and nobody cared. Where was the outrage that 25 million people lost their jobs? I don't remember much outrage. There was a little bit of, hey, send them checks. Mm -hmm. Send them $1,000. How long do you think that lasts? Not very long. The just thing would have been to find a way for these folks to keep their jobs. The only way that was going to be possible was for the companies to advocate for opening up. That's the only way that would have been possible, and they weren't going to do that. That went against the party and the ideology. When you have a society or a whole, you know, ideology, or you know, as John McWhorter calls it, you know, a religion, and then I can't help but think there's this whole social constructivist, powerful element in it, where you know, people that are believers literally believe that whatever they think of, whatever the postulates of the ideology of that, that is reality. That's what's going to be reality. I mean, it creates a very, very troubling situation for society, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, one of the things, because I've thought about why. Why are so many willing to give themselves over to this? Why are they willing to believe? And I think, you know, look, inherently most of us want to believe we're good guys, that we're doing the right thing. I think most people want some sort of framework for how to behave and do the right thing. And in a world where religion is less and less relevant, we still look for those constructs and frameworks elsewhere. We still have this human impulse of religiosity, I think. And we have this religion-sized whole in our hearts collectively. And so we buy into it in other ways. And I think woke, woke ideology is the most popular way right now. We buy into it with second-rate religions like Scientology. <laughs> you know, I'm obsessed with Scientology. There is no difference between David Miscavige, the guy that runs that, and Scott or Sam <laughs> Bankman-Fried. They're the same. They both sold a framework for how to be a good person. They got people to turn over their money, and it's a big, fraudulent scheme. 
but it's our desire to believe in something and want to be part of something bigger than ourselves and have this framework for how to make good decisions to be a good person. That's what I think the impetus is. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is moving forward after what's happened. You've lost friends, as we've discussed. There's all sorts of people you'll, you'll never look at the same. There's all sorts of people that have made, let's say, bad decisions that might have cost even loved ones their lives. It's going to be very difficult for them to admit to themselves. They did that as we become more aware, which I believe, I believe we have to, yeah. uh, of the reality of what happened, right? And the costs of these lockdown measures, these qu quickly adopted vaccines, uh, genetic vaccines, and so yeah. forth. So there's uh, going to be a large social reckoning that needs to ha happen. It's going to be very difficult. And in an environment where there isn't a shared value system, as you described, there's, there's less and less of one. It makes it extra difficult. How, what do you see as the way forward? Oh, goodness. I don't know. I don't really know what the way forward is. It's all too sort of fresh for me. I can't unsee what I've seen. So much cruelty um, from people I respected people cheering for others to lose their jobs if they refused vaccination, people cheering for others to be demonized and ostracized, people I thought were good people. I can't unsee that. Um, so I'm not feeling all that forgiving. And certainly no apology has been offered. In fact, some of the most horrific policies are being doubled down upon. There's still debates about masking very young children in school. In schools, there are still um, booster mandate policies at universities. We know this does nothing. There are still vaccine and booster mandates for employment in certain private companies. Um, well, so, I'll just jump in for for the young people. It's a lot worse than nothing, that's right. isn't it? Yes. Right. That's yeah. right. That's especially egregious because we know they are the most likely to be harmed from vaccination, young men in particular. It's particularly egregious and we continue to double down on the worst of the policies. You know, there's been this sort of plea for amnesty for those who um, perhaps were wrong but did it for the right reasons or that's what we're supposed to think. People like Fauci and the teachers unions and, you know, public health bureaucrats, but these were not benign decisions. And long after we knew that they were useless and ineffective and perhaps and dangerous, um, these folks continued to push and double down. So I think there needs to be some shared understanding of how harmful these policies were. And there's a real sort of um, attitude in the air of let's just move along. Let's just you know, never look back. But if we do that, we don't wrestle with the harms done to children and the catastrophic learning loss, which we need to wrestle with so we can help them. If we don't acknowledge and understand and create a joint understanding of how horrible these policies were in terms of the damage caused, how cruel they were, then we can do it again. So until we get to that shared understanding, I won't stop talking about how horrible it all was.
I may be very unsuccessful, but I won't stop. So as we're finishing here, tell me what you hope people can get out of your book, which frankly, you know, covers a lot of bases. Yeah. What I really hope they get is that you can do it. Screw up your courage, say the thing, call out the lies, push back against injustice, stand up and say it. And you've got to do it now. And chances are more people agree with you than you think. Yes, it's scary, but you've got to do it. And I give a lot of background on my life, which was unusual. Um, and there was a really intense amount of obedience that was instilled in me as a child. It's very hard for me to find the courage to do this, but you have to do it. It's dangerous what's happening. Um, harms are caused when good people fail to speak up. And so I hope, it's my fondest hope, that it gives people a little nudge and a little dose of courage to kind of stand up and do the right thing and say what they really think. And it's really the only way to kind of pierce this bubble, this like hypnotic um, bubble we seem to be in of wokeism, where we all have to uphold its tenets as the only way to be a good person. You may agree with 80% of it, but if 20% you question, you have to say it. Because you're going to be on the wrong side of something at some point. Like, stand up for your friends and neighbors who use their voice and use your own. It's the only way, and it's the only way we can kind of pierce this mass hypnosis, what appears to be mass hypnosis. Well, Jennifer Say, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining Jennifer Say and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.